First reading is from Mark chapter 9, verses 1 to 9. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. The second reading comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 1, starting at verse 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples of earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, uh, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lamps, uh, lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, 
I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lamps, lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Thank you, Dylan. Keep that passage open, please. And uh, we're going to open, we're going to explore it together. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, we worship you, we praise you, we glorify you, we follow you here now in this day and this age. We bend our will to yours and in doing so we are lifted up by your saving grace. Teach us now and guide us and change us by your Holy Spirit whom you've given us. Amen. I begin today with an urban legend. I heard it in the 1980s and to be honest it's a story that helped me to become a Christian, it then did the rounds of the internet in the 1990s. Google tells me two things. One, the legend had its origin in the 1930s, and B, it's all bunk, which is a pity. To be honest, I wouldn't normally start with such a story, but it's useful for our Advent series. It involves a radio communication between two ships on the high seas at night. One ship, American, and the other ship, Canadian. Now, you might have heard this story. It goes like this. Americans say, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid collision. The Canadians reply back, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid collision. The Americans say, this is the captain of a US Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. The Canadians say, no, I say to you, you divert your course. The Americans eventually say, look, this is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north, or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of the ship, and you know the story, the Canadians say, this is a lighthouse, your call. It's a classic story, it's a cute story. It's actually been quite helpful for the homeless Bible study that Dave and I live. They get it. Sometimes we can think that we're big and important, but when you come up against the truth, which at first glance you think is insignificant, but you come against, up against the truth, it's an immovable truth, and when you come up against it, you change course. When you meet the immovable thing, you move, right? Your call. Here's an example of what that looks like when it comes to bending to God's truth. My friend Ray Galea said this about the beginning of his faith. He said, when I read the Bible for the first time, I realized how different God and Ray Galea are and I knew right there and then one of us had to change your call. I believe this is also true when you come up against the risen Christ. Here's what happened when John saw a vision of the risen Christ. We're told in Revelation 1 verse 17, just read to us, we're told, when I saw the risen Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. Got that? 
that powerful, I fell as though dead. That same Jesus is still risen, still reigning, still to return. What happens next? Verse 17, then the risen Jesus placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. He was naturally afraid and the risen Jesus says, do not be afraid. In C.S. Lewis's Narnia, Susan finds out that Aslan is a lion. She asks if he's safe and he's told, safe, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So we begin our Advent series leading up to Christmas on the supremacy of Christ. He is the lighthouse to our aircraft carriers. He is the greatest of all time. Goat, of course, in that little invitation to Christmas in your little news sheets. G-O-A-T, goat is a modern way of talking about a superlative. A goat, the greatest person of all time, the greatest thing of all time. To say, for example, that uh, Donald Braben is the greatest of all time, greatest cricketer of all time, is relatively uncontested. But most claims to be the goat are fun, they're subjective, and they are contested. But the claim that Jesus is the greatest of all time is backed by God himself. Jesus is the greatest of all time precisely because he is a member of the Godhead. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity. He is God in flesh. He existed as the eternal son from before the beginning of creation. He predates matter before he takes on flesh. That's what John basically says in John 1. Through the word, all things were made. Without the word, nothing was made that has been made. That same John later says, that word, without whom nothing was made that has been made, that word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that's what Christmas is all about. Paul writes these words within 30 years of the life of Jesus. Colossians 1, for in Christ all things were created, Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and, get this, for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. What a claim. It is, of course, an indisputable fact of history that within decades of the life of Jesus, there were people all over the known world that believed that. That he is the Lord of Lords and the Lord over Lords. This, of course, is the greatest of all time language. Theologians call it the supremacy of Christ. In doctrine, some call it a high Christology. That is, we're lifting up Christ. We're not downplaying him. And during Advent, we're going to look at what I call the purple passages, the beautiful passages on the supremacy of Christ, of which that one I just showed you, that's one of them. Today, he is the king of kings. That phrase, king of all kings, is mentioned over and over in the book of Revelation in chapter 19. Jesus has it 
effectively tattooed up his thigh. To say that Jesus is the king of kings is to say that he is not just the very best of kings, although he is, but also that he is king over all the kings. We know the phrase when we talk about the Song of Songs in the Old Testament, the Song of Songs, or the King of Kings, is a Hebrew way of saying it's the best, most, well, in song, it's the song, the most delightful of all songs. Of all songs, this is the most delightful of them. To say he is the King of Kings is to say of all kings, this one is the most powerful. There are kings, and this one is king over them. There are bosses, this one is boss over them. There are lords, then and now, and this one is lord over them. Back then there were Caesars who claimed to be the lord, but this one is lord over Caesars. Very important if you're receiving the book of Revelation and you're worried about whether or not you're going to live. Who do you bow to? Caesar as lord or Jesus as lord? When we say Jesus is lord, we are talking about the supremacy of Christ, not only over individual lives, not only over the church, that's true, but over all things, even over the last enemy. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, until the last enemy is vanquished, namely death itself. Theologian and politician of the 19th century, Abraham Kuyper, famously said, there is not a square inch of the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Sovereign over all. That's what we mean when we talk about the supremacy of Christ. But it begs the question, and some of us will be asking it, what kind of Lord? Because we know there are toxic lords, there's toxic power, and some of us might be nervous. We'll be looking at that very issue during the community carols on December 11 at 4 p.m., right here at the Garrison Church, where we'll be looking at Philippians chapter 2. But when you meet Jesus as he really is now, what things change? Before we answer that question, I want to talk about Revelation briefly. It's a genre, a type of literature. The genre is called apocalyptic, which doesn't mean to destroy the planet in some dystopian way. That's not what apocalyptic means. The genre apocalyptic means to reveal, to make clear. But it does so, makes things clear to its original hearers then, certainly, and to us now. It does through by this weird language that Dylan just read to us. It is highly stylized, highly symbolic, highly emotive, highly hidden from Roman eyes. They look at it, read it, and just chuck it away and say, well, that's junk, as many of your friends would do with the book. They'd read it and say, well, you know, is that, G is that John on weed? Put it aside, but we're not putting it aside. It's highly borrowed from the Old Testament. In fact, it's patently clear to me that John wasn't on some acid rush. The whole of the book of Revelation is tightly organized, but weird. When you meet Jesus as he really is, what things change? And I want to suggest three things. You find a new Lord, a new peace, and a new revelation to listen to. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So firstly, you find that you have a new Lord, and with this new Lord, a new direction. If you follow Jesus, you've got a new direction. 
If you follow Jesus, as many of us claim to do, you have a new Lord, one who is over you, to whom you bend your knee. I mean, he might, he might face towards you in love, but your task in life is to find his will, to face him. In John chapter 4, John, sorry, Revelation 1 verse 4, John begins his word to the seven churches in the province of Asia in this way. 1 verse 4, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, who is now, who was always, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's goat language there. Notice a few things. Notice the Trinitarian form. This revelation is from him who is and who was and who is to come. It's from the seven spirits before the throne. Not that there are seven spirits, but seven is the number for complete completeness. This is from the whole of the Spirit of God, not withheld from you or from the churches. And also, thirdly, from the man, Jesus Christ. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You'll notice the supremacy of Christ right here. He is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the first of many to rise, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, the king of kings. You'll notice if you look in your Bibles, what feels like a conflation of the categories. Things that belong to God the Father are then appointed to Jesus Christ, or using the book of Daniel 7, which we'll look at at Rivendell, things that belong to the Ancient of Days also belong to the Son of Man, the human one. So you'll notice it really clearly if you look closely, Revelation 1, verse 8, God says, the Almighty says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, which is the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, correct? I am the A and the Z, says the Lord Almighty, who is and who was and who is to come. But Jesus says of himself in verse 17, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. Now, there are different categories there, although Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega in Revelation 21 verse 6 and 22 verse 13. And if you look at verse 17, Jesus says, I am the first and the last, and that language is appointed to the Lord Almighty in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. This is what the Lord says, Israel's king of Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and I am the last. Jesus did that about himself. Apart from me, there is no God. That's still true. There's one God, he is Father, Son, and he is Holy Spirit. That means that he is Lord over all, and the picture drawn in verses 12 through 16 is breathtaking. Look at it. Please look at it with me. The vision John sees is borrowed heavily from Daniel 7 with a conflation of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man who's led into his presence. Look at verse 13. I turned around. I saw someone like in the vision, someone like a Son of Man, a human one, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a gold sash around his chest. The hair in his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire, which is true of the ancient of days in Daniel chapter 7. His feet, this one like a son of man, was like bronze glowing in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. 
in weird language, emotive language, in his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. It's a picture, of course, I don't believe for one second that you'll ever meet Jesus and he'll open his mouth and like, wah, out comes his sword. That's not going to happen. It's highly emotive, highly symbolic. Jesus, when he says things, he cuts right into your soul. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Now, it's weird and symbolic, but the main point appears clear. Don't mess with Jesus Christ. Don't muck around with him. Why would you need this vision? Well, you need this vision if you're tempted to look around you in your work or home and you think that Jesus is little. I mean, everybody treats him as little. When you're praying to the rubble back in Jerusalem, remember Steve's sermon on Daniel 6? You're praying to the rubble back in Jerusalem and you're dazzled by the world around you, Sydney. When you believe that the powers that be are the real powers and that nothing really can stop the suffering, that's when you need this vision. Peter, James, and John needed to know who Jesus really is. And so in Mark 9, that first reading, Jesus took them up a mountain and the Father transfigured the Son, Jesus, in all brilliance to be like the image articulated here in Revelation chapter 1. The, uh, the transfiguration after the service, go and have a look at the window, is in the far right-hand panel. And we're told in Mark 9, Peter, James and John were afraid, like John was afraid. But only after Jesus was risen from the dead did they understand what was being said here. This is Jesus as he really is. You've got a new Lord. Secondly, you've got a new peace. Some of us are afraid of power. We've been mistreated. But here, John is lifted to his free feet in grace. In verse 17, when I saw Jesus as he really is, or at least the depiction of him in Revelation, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. Like Mary, who was told, do not be afraid before she received the good news. John is told, do not be afraid before he received the good news. I am the first and the last, Isaiah 44. I am the living one. I was dead, the lamb who was slaughtered, but now, look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. In other words, Jesus has got you back. He's got you back in life, this life. Back in verse 9, we're told the context of the book of Revelation is suffering and the need for patient endurance. He's got you back. He's got you back in this life and in the life of the world to come. He alone holds the keys to death and Hades. There's one enemy that gets us all, death, but Christ got him by his resurrection from the dead. So hold on, don't give in to fear. Don't capitulate to other fears. Worship him. Give him the glory. Follow him. Endure suffering. Don't give in and be at peace. You have a peace that surpasses all understanding guarding your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And lastly and finally, you've got a new revelation. The USS Lincoln had to change path when it was about to run aground, and we need to as well when we hear the revelation, when we hear the voice of God 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We need to know what's real, and we need God to tell us. We need to find out the will of God. We need to rip back the sky to find out what's really real. That's what Revelation is effectively happening. The sky is being ripped back to find out what's really real. And what is really real is not just what you see, hear, taste, touch, and smell. We don't live in a mere materialist universe. That's what the socialists said to control the masses. There's nothing but this life, so rise up. The Roman sword is not the only language going around. The Roman sword is not the only thing to listen to. We need to live in the will of God and by the grace of God, and we need to change when we hear him speak. If Jesus is the greatest of all time, then it means we are not the greatest of all time. So the rise and triumph of the modern self becomes the furphy of our age, the lie of a generation. Revelation is a revelation to us from Jesus Christ, verse 1, which God gave him and Jesus gave to John. And he gave it to John miraculously, not via deduction, clever deduction, but via an angel. And we're told in verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this property, pr prophecy, Dylan. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and, as well, blessed are those who hear it. You hear and on live stream and next door. Blessed are you who hear it and blessed are you who take it to heart what is written in it because the time is near, which is what Advent is all about, waiting. Revelation is meant to make things clearer, not muddier. And in essence, I believe the book says something very simple. If you think the Roman Empire is the greatest of all time, you are wrong. Jesus is. If you think the Roman Empire is the greatest of all time, you'll buckle with fear. This is not what God wants for you. No, Jesus is the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. He is the one who made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And in verse 7, quoting Zechariah, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. In the prayer for Advent Sunday, we thank God that he came the first time in great humility, recognising that he will eventually come in his glorious majesty to judge the living and the dead. And Jesus has something to say in the first instance to the seven churches of Asia Minor in chapters 2 and 3, things like, um, do not lose your first love, don't be lukewarm, Repent and do the things you did at first. Whoever has an ear, let him hear. In the Transfiguration, that first reading, they're all afraid and they're not sure what to do seeing Jesus as he will be. But the Father says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. But I believe this is the key to the whole book of Revelation. 
Jesus says to John, write therefore what you've seen, in other words, the vision before you, write it down, and then what is now, that's interesting, isn't it? What is now, what is now? What, write down what is now, and later, therefore, what will take place later. What is now is that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and ruling in all his glory, Christ in his current glory. He is reigning as the redeemer and the ruler, and because of what is, Christ is Lord, therefore must take place, which is the destruction of, of Rome, of Babylon, he will win and Caesar won't. And so we wait with eager expectation. You are on the correct side of history. You don't have to fear Nero if he lights up the Appian Way with Christians who are burning. There's a famous line, it's funny, sort of, and comforting. It goes like this. The day will come when men will call their dogs Nero and their sons Paul. The day will come when men will call their dogs Nero and Caesar and their sons Paul and Peter. The lighthouse we thought should move for us, the rubble in Jerusalem we thought was a thing of the past, the man who we thought was just a good man, maybe the very best of men, none of that is ultimately true. When we speak about Jesus, we're not just talking about a good person or a revolutionary, although he is both those things, or a good example, he most certainly is. But we're talking about Jesus being the greatest of all time, the Messiah, the one whom God has raised from the dead. No wonder the wise men bowed down. They were wise. May we join them this Advent. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I ask you to give us a new mind to know the truth that uh, we need to bend our wills to the will of Jesus Christ risen from the dead. We pray that you'll give us new eyes to see the truth through the testimony of John and the early church. May we believe and not buckle and not give way to fear in the same way they did and for the same reason. May you give us ears to hear, to truly hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We might not understand how this is all going to pan out, uh, but this we know, Christ will come in glory and myriad, myriad human voices will sing and earth to heaven and heaven and earth will answer at last the Saviour, Saviour of the world is king. We might not know, but this we know. Give us this certainty for Christ's sake. Amen.